Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Associate Pastor Ian Mulraney. This is Matthew 5:43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thank you, Karen. All right, it's a uh, little overcast this morning, and I'm going to try and make it so we don't fall asleep. So why don't we talk about football, okay? (laughs) You can tell. uh, Yeah, go Eagles. Um, All right, so if you don't know, uh, today is the first Eagles-Cowboys game of the season, right? Who's going to watch it today? Harry, I know you're going to watch it. Yeah, all right, all right. So, Eagles-Cowboys, if you're not familiar, they're in the same division, and so they're kind of big rivals with each other. Um, this is how they feel about each other. Can someone read that? Because I cannot see the slides. So, someone read it. We hate them. They hate us. The fans hate each other. Pure hatred. Yeah, that's what sports is all about, right? <laughs> Just this big rivalry between these two groups, these two teams. And so when you hate each other, what does that look like? Does it look like this? Hit it, Kyle. Is that what we expect? Big love fest, hugging each other, hanging out after the game? No. No. What does it look like? It looks more like this, right? Dallas sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Can I get an amen to that slide? We, and we all, it also looks like this, right? I think this one is very funny. Uh, so if you can't read it, it says, it says, Cowboys fans beat up Eagles fan, Philly fans just watch. Uh, and as a side note, the Cowboys pummeled the Eagles on the field too. So, so um, this is just sports, but it has real world implications sometimes, right? That Eagles fan, apparently what happened was just, and this was at Philly too, I'm pretty sure. Just, he was around a bunch of Dallas fans, he was egging them on, and they just laid into him with their fists and their feet, and all the other Eagles fans, instead of just joining in, just kind of let it happen, probably were cheering along too. You know, this is sports. These are enemies in sports, and yet physical violence is a real thing taunting, online hate, and mockery, right? This is what happens when we have enemies. When we have enemies, we do not wish the best for them. We do not want to hug and kiss them. We want only the worst for them. And when we have the chance to enable how we feel against them, sometimes we take it. Sometimes the reason we have enemies are a bit silly, like sports, right? It has real-world consequences, but in the big scheme of life, sports are not the, no, I don't want to tread on any toes here, but sports is not actually all that important in the big things that matter in life. They're fun, uh, they can bring people together, but they're not what life is all about. 
And that goes for any kind of fandom or whatever that people get worked up over. Sometimes enemies, though, are a little bit more personal. It's when someone or a group of people have personally injured us or wronged us, our middle school bullies, a coworker who went behind our back and slandered us or got us fired unjustly. Sometimes our enemies are people that we've been told and taught not to like. There's a house that when I was growing up across the street from us where my mom told me, don't talk to those people. And I did. And it was only when I was in my 20s coming home the one time to visit my parents that I was getting out of the car right when they pulled in their driveway and like automatically I like hid my face from them like not wanting to interact and then I was like why do I not like them I don't I've never even talked to them my whole life even though we grew up across the street from each other so I said hi you know sometimes we're taught not to like people but today I want you to think about your enemies or an enemy in particular I think that'll help make this a little bit more real, this what sermon of what Jesus is teaching us. But I'm not here to talk about why we have enemies. I'm here to talk about reconciliation and what we do when we have our enemies. You know, the passage this morning, this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is giving a whole list of teachings about how to live our lives. And it seems that he takes for granted that we're going to have enemies in life, that we're going to have people that don't like us and that we do not like. And so what do we do when we have our enemies? And especially if we're thinking about if Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself and reconcile man to each other, what do we do with our enemies? And so the most important takeaway I think I want you to have from our passage today is to love your enemy and start that by praying for them. That that's the first step. And that's what Jesus gets to right away. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This teaching should be pretty jarring for us if we actually sit with it. There may be some of us have heard it too often in life that it just kind of, we gloss over what it actually means. Love your neighbor. That's pretty good. You know, I'll religions teach that to some extent. We like that. Hate your enemies, is that's logical. But Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so you can be children of your Father in heaven. Why should we love and pray for those who have caused us difficulties, injuries, pain? Can you listen to the ridiculousness that Christ says? Pray for those who persecute you. Should the Jews in the Holocaust have prayed for the Nazis? Should black people pray for the KKK? Those are big examples, but like, think about people whose whole lives are built around hate and violence and death. How can you pray for those who hate you? And why should we pray for those who hate you? We don't pray for them so that our enemy can become a better person. I think that's something we need to take away from this. Like Jesus isn't saying, when you pray for those who persecute you, they will start loving you in return and they'll, they'll come and apologize and they'll be better people. Jesus doesn't promise that. 
It doesn't mean that we get to work towards peace for them, or even that we'll have peace with ourselves. But Jesus says it is so that we can be children of our Father in heaven. The thought here is that children usually look somewhat like their parents, and they act in the way that their parents teach them to act in an ideal world. But So when we pray for our enemies, if we become like our Father who's in heaven, a change starts in our heart that helps us to look more like God. And we get more at the heart of who God is. Praying is a great first step of reconciliation because you don't actually have to go and approach the person yourself. You can just alone in your room begin to speak and think positively over them to ask God, the mediator, to take care of those who hate you and who you might hate as well. The more that you bring your enemies and their needs before God, you're going to find the less you really dislike them. And it might help you to even start to love them. And I think the other reason we need to do this is because it's what God does for us first. So, how many of you have, are familiar with the passage in Romans 5 where St. Paul tells us that when we were in our sin, we all were enemies of God? Everyone loves that verse, right? That's top ten favorite Christian Bible verses, especially for uh, those with religious trauma that I think we think of big, bearded, Old Testament God, fire and smoke behind him, preparing his lightning bolts to smite the wicked. And yet, I actually think when the New Testament uses the phrase that we are enemies of God, I think it's supposed to reveal more about our character than about how God thinks of us. Stay with me here. (laughs) I think it reveals that we are, in fact, in the antagonistic relationship between man and God. We're the aggressors, right? We look at God as all-powerful and mighty. But if you study the story of humanity, you know, in the Edenic vision in Genesis, man lived in harmony with each other and with creation and with God. And we're the ones who said we wanted to be our own gods. We wanted to know good from evil. And as a result, we brought violence, we brought greed, we brought disorder into the planet, into society, into our relationships. Uh, Look at history. History is a long list of violence mandated by the state, wars, persecutions, human sacrifices. Sexual abuse flourishes in our world today, and it has and seems to always have. Wealth seems to not ever have been dispersed equally. You know, human history just seems civilization after civilization of wealth going from the have-nots to the have-too-muches, right? That's how it has been, that's how it is, that's how it seems like it always will be. And God hates that. Like, God wants people to have peace. God loves people. He wants them to get along in their relationships. And so we're the ones who take God's good order and we, you know, spit at it, we destroy it, we break. And then we have the gall to usually ask one of two things. 
or say one of two things. We either like look at the brokenness in the world around us and we say, God, you know, if God's real, he doesn't care about injustice because he lets all this happen. Or when we see times of retribution or, you know, punishment or justice, we say, God, why is God so angry all the time? We don't ever seem to have a good attitude towards how God deals with sin. It's either too much or not enough. And so we're the enemies of God because we each individually and culturally contribute to sins that are against the good order that God has set up. I ask you to stay with me here, even if you don't agree. I know Oliver's in the next room saying, Dad, I'm a baby, right? So, <laughs> same thing for Eric, right? Like, how are we all the enemies of God? So even if you don't agree with that part, Stick with me in this next part. Just just pretend for a second you are the enemy of God and that's how God sees you. Because we have to ask ourselves, if we are God's enemies, then how does God treat his enemies? How does God treat his enemies who have disobeyed him, brought ruin and death to his good creation? Like this. This picture is called Christ Washes Judas's Feet. Judas is the disciple who, right after this occurs, is going to go and betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that. If we are God's enemies, if, you know, this is how God treats his enemies. God loves his enemies. To quote our passage from this morning, he causes his sun to shine upon the good and the evil. He sends his rain on the good and the evil to water their crops, to give them water to drink. So I want us to understand that like, if we are the enemies of God, God is really good to his enemies. Too good, in fact, sometimes. He loves them. He's patient with them. Even in the Old Testament, Old Testament God is where he has the reputation of being violent and angry and judgmental and wrathful, right? That's where we think, like, New Testament God is merciful, Old Testament God is wrathful. In the Old Testament, he gives both the Canaanites and the Israelites a 400-year gap between the first time he says he's going to bring judgment upon them to when he actually enacts it. When civilizations repent in the Old Testament, he turns his anger and wrath away. The 400 years is just fascinating. Like, imagine if God in the 1600s, the French and Indian War, was like, if, you, if America doesn't get on track, I'm going to come and judge you. And then think of all the history that has happened to get to today, right? 400 years. You know, God is so patient, in fact, in the Old Testament that there's two books of the Bible where people wish God was angrier, Habakkuk and Jonah. Jonah knows that God is a forgiving God and he gets mad because God forgives the Ninevites. And Habakkuk is in the same boat. Habakkuk looks around at the world and the evil around him and he says, God, why don't you do something about this? So it's kind of funny that Old Testament God is the wrathful one and there's two books of the Bible that say, why isn't God more wrathful in that area too? The thing is God does punish evil but he does seem to drag his feet about it. And, you know, the reason is because, again, in the Old Testament, 
or the book of Ezekiel, twice God goes on a whole um, speech, twice in the book of Ezekiel, where he talks about he does not delight in punishing the wicked. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. And the funny thing is, like, he's God, right? He's all-powerful. He's nobody's employee. Nobody's on top of him. He calls the shots. He can do what he wants. If God wanted to make a giant swimming pool and drown all of us like Sims for fun, he could. And nobody could tell him it was wrong. And yet, he doesn't want to do that. Like, he doesn't want to just treat us like toys. He doesn't want to, like, see those who do evil and smite them and get his, you know, pleasure from that. It does not bring him pleasure. It does not bring him delight. He loves every single one of us, even the people who have wronged and hurt us. God loves your enemies because he loves his enemies. And God loves you, even if you disobey, even if you bring chaos, even if you don't love him, God loves you. And so our, this passage of the um, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 to 48, is not just meant as nice words or positive thinking. It's Jesus telling us that if we want to be like God, that we have to love like God. And it's easy to love the people that you are like, right? It's easy to love the people who share the same political views as you, who hold the same hobbies and interests. It's easy to love the people who you don't disagree on any point of theology with. And that's not wrong. That's just, we like connecting with people. We like feeling like our views are affirmed when they're reflected back to us by someone else. But it's really challenging to love beyond your tribe, though. It's really challenging to love those who disagree with you, and especially if those who disagree with you have hurt you in the past, or humiliated you, or brought you shame or disgrace. Like, we don't do that naturally. We self-segregate. And in this world of social media, Facebook is doing a great job at helping us self-segregate even more, right? We get targeted ads to tell us where we need to go to be with people who think just like us. And to kind of echo chamber that everything you have ever thought and felt and said is correct and 100% true and you don't need to challenge your beliefs at all. So, that's easy. And as part of humanity, we all want community. We all have a desire to be with other people. God says it's not good to be alone. But you can find community for anything, right? You can find a community on your bowling team, your Dungeons and Dragons group, your Civil War reenactment, posse, whatever they're called. You can find community in the sports fandom who root for the same sports team or your political party. In those places, you're going to find people who love and support you and care for you and hold common interests. But the church, Jesus didn't set up the church to be just a community like that. It, the church is supposed to be a place where people who hate each other and disagree in almost everything of life can come together at the foot of the cross. They can take communion together they can sing songs of praise together, not because they've suddenly come to like each other, 
but because they have been saved by the blood of Christ. Because that's the only thing they have in common, that the radical love of God has reached both those people. We see this in Jesus' chosen followers. We have Simon the Zealot, who believed that the Roman government needed to be overthrown by uh, force. And in the same group of disciples, you have Matthew the tax collector, who worked for the Romans and made money off of them. Two very different views. <laughs> you see it when uh, the New Testament church struggles to bring Jewish believers and Gentile believers who differed in everything, you know. That's why if you read the New Testament and wonder why they're talking about circumcision so much, it's because people didn't know what to do with it because one group had certain rules and the another group had certain rules and they just could not get along over this one issue of circumcision. But yet, Jesus wants us to be together. <laughs> the church needs to be better because the world is not going to ever offer a place where enemies can coexist in the same space. And so how do we do that? Like I said, I think an easy first step instead of going up and like calling the person you hate and being like, let's grab coffee sometime. It's just alone in your private time, lifting them before God, lifting them, their families, their souls to the Lord. And here's the thing. When you pray for your enemy, don't do it. I want to lift up Hitler to you. I just ask that you um, bless Hitler with everything that's coming to him. I pray that you uh, really uh, change his heart, let us get him, get him his comeuppance. Treat him uh, the way he's treated others, bring him pain. Right? We're not praying actually for bad things over people. Pray for them as you would your family or yourself. You know, we don't pray for people to be converted or to change or whatever, because then you're still just dealing with that hate in your heart. But you're trying to love them as God loves them. And if you're not there, I think you should confess that in your prayer time to God. To just say, like, God, I don't have anything nice to say about this person or these people, but I give them to you. That's a simple enough prayer that is honest with Jesus about where your heart is at and still blesses them. Yeah, so love your enemies, not because it makes them better people, but it's going to make your heart more aligned with the heart of God. God loves his enemies and is so, 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 so good to them. He washes their feet. He died for them on the cross. And so you can go and pray for your enemies too. You can love them likewise. Confess to the Lord when it's hard. Remember your feelings don't need to match your words. Love is far more often action than emotion, so you don't always need to have the feeling before you say the words for it. And let the prayer be the seeds that flourish into the beautiful plant of reconciliation for those who stand against you. And pray for the cowboys. <laughs> To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.